Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here with my co-host Octavia Bright. Good morning, Octavia. Morning, Carrie. Our show this month is about literary imposters, some of fiction's most fascinating characters, from Twelfth Night's Viola to Tom Ripley to Clark Kent, are those that are not what they seem. Our guest today is Sarah Perry, whose uncanny, atmospheric debut novel, After Me Comes the Flood, features one such memorable imposter. We'll be talking to Sarah, discussing the theme, and, as always, recommending books. Uh, before I have Octavia introduce Sarah, I just want to also say that we are running on one mic today after a batch of technical difficulties, so please do bear with us. Octavia, tell us about Sarah. Oh, well, um, I've also got a kitten jumping on my leg, which is an exciting addition to the gang. Um, Sarah Perry is a writer, academic, and journalist, and she has a PhD in creative writing and the Gothic from Royal Holloway, where she was supervised by former poet laureate Andrew Motion. She was the winner of the Shiva Naipaul Memorial Prize and a Royal Holloway doctoral studentship, and was also a writer-in-residence at Gladstone's Library. Her debut novel, After Me Comes the Flood, won the East Anglian Book of the Year Award in 2014, and was longlisted for the Guardian First Book Award and the Folio Prize. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for being with us today. Morning. Thank you very much for having me. So we've asked you to do a short reading at the beginning of the interview. Could you set it up? Um, I'm going to read from the opening, and um, as I always say when I'm reading this in front of people, for the purposes of the next three minutes, I'm a man in his 40s, <laughs> um, inadequate and uh, thoughtful and rather lonely with a beard. So <laughs> um, and it's self-explanatory, so I won't uh, tell you any more. Um, but yes, imagine that I'm not a 35-year-old woman who smiles a lot, but a rather somber man. Wednesday... I'm writing this in a stranger's room on a broken chair at an old school desk. The chair creaks if I move, so I must keep very still. The lid of the desk is scored with symbols that might have been made by children or men, and at the bottom of the inkwell, a beetle is lying on its back. Just now I thought I saw it move, but it's dry as a husk and must have died long before I came. There's a lamp on the floor by my feet with painted moths on the paper shade. The bulb has a covering of dust thick as felt and I daren't turn it on in case they see and come and find me again. There are two windows at my side and a bright light at the garden's end throws a pair of slanted panels on the wall. It makes this paper yellow and the skin of my hands. They don't look as if they have anything to do with me and it makes me wonder where mine are and what they're doing. I've been listening for footsteps on the stairs or voices in the garden, but there's only the sound of a household keeping quiet. They gave me too much to drink. There's a kind of buzzing in my ears, and if I close my eyes, they sting. I've never kept a diary before. Nothing ever happens to me worth the trouble of writing it down. But I hardly believe what happened today or what I've done. I'm afraid that in a month's time, I'll think it was all some foolish novel I read years ago when I was young and knew no better. I've written my own name down, because if I ever find this notebook again, I'd like to be certain that it's my handwriting recording these events, that I did what I have done, that it was nobody's fault but mine. Thank you very much. And I think uh, a good way to set up this month's theme, which is literary imposters, what I really love about this novel is that it features an imposter, but an imposter who doesn't he's not really malicious in his intent. He stumbles into a situation where he's mistaken for someone also named John Cole and starts to play along. How did you get that idea and why did you want to write about it? 
Um, I the the idea for the book is slightly obscure, and and people are, people often ask where ideas came from, and if I give an honest answer, I sound insufferably pretentious. So you're going to have to forgive me. Um, but I I was brought up in a very strict religious sect, and so much of my youth was spent listening to sermons, and a very common theme for the sermons was that of love, and they would very often say how in the English language we have one word for love. I mean, there's other forms of conveying affection, but love as the kind of the exalted and supreme emotion we only have one word for. Whereas in the language of the New Testament, there are several words for love. So you have eros for erotic love, agape, philios, and storgi. Um, And so I thought, would it be interesting to find a man who'd never really loved, not loved well and satisfactorily and wholeheartedly, and throw him into a situation where he encountered every kind of love going, damaging love, illicit love, platonic love, erotic love, And so the idea of him being an imposter seemed to me to be really important because if you throw someone into that kind of intimate situation, they need to be an outsider. How else would you suddenly find yourself dropped into this kind of boiling pan of emotion? Um, So his imposter status is really integral to it. But also, I didn't want him to be spiteful or malicious or even to know what he was doing because I think as we encounter life, very often we stumble over emotions and we stumble over people and we're confused and we wander about and we don't know what to do with it. So he, um, he, I wanted this to be almost like a, an, a, a purified image of what life actually is like for a lot of us suddenly encountering these things. I think you pull it off. <laughs> he's, he's kind of an everyman character in a way that's really enjoyable to read. And I think, yeah, the fact that he's not... Have, he does not have any malicious intent allows us to identify with him in a really com- like comfortable way. You know, It doesn't bring our own morality into an uncomfortable place. Um, it's got a lot of gothic elements, your novel. Uh, it kind of screams gothic to me in, in a way that I, I enjoy. Um, the large, decrepit country house and the uncanny happenings, shady pasts, all of that. Um, and we, we read that you... Uh, the Gothic was the subject of a PhD. Um, And so I wanted to ask how your academic background shaped the book and do you think it was a hindrance at all? And I'm asking that from a very personal place. (laughs) (laughs) I understand, I do. Um, Now, this is one of these things that I've I've answered so often that I have to check myself to check that it's true. I'm doing it now. Yes, it is true. Okay, so um, I began writing the novel and had the idea for the novel um, before I began my PhD thesis. So I wrote it as part of my PhD. And um, my favourite writers at the time were George Orwell, Graham Greene, Siebold. Um, writers of very clear, plain prose, <laughs> realist fiction I admired very much. I loved Thomas Hardy as well. I did not enjoy the Gothic more than any other. T- I'm a bit of a magpie reader. I'll read anything literally um including bags of shampoo bottles if there's nothing else um everyone now knows what i mean when i'm on the loo right (laughs) um so you always have a bookcase in the toilet that's my advice um so i started writing it and then halfway through the manuscript i remember my supervisor tapping the manuscript and saying you have written a gothic novel and i was completely appalled because i wanted to have written something serious and thoughtful maybe darkly humorous but i wasn't expecting to be told that i was engaging with a genre that to me spoke of excess and sort of nightgowns and girls running away from sort of evil men in corridors but the moment someone tells you the kind of writing that you are you can't help but become self-aware so I had a choice I either ran away from it and that would falsify my work because trying not to write something is as bad as trying to write something 
Or I could study the Gothic and become aware of the inheritance that I was writing in. So I chose that. And I'm really glad I did because I realised that my conception of the Gothic, of, of rather sort of vulgar, rather absurd situations, is not right. And actually the Gothic thrives in a place of the uncanny, of the strange, of psychological trauma, of strange terrors, of never quite knowing whether you've seen something out of the corner of your eye or you're mad. Mm. And all of that stuff I find really appealing. So... Um, when I wrote my second book, which is out in a few months, um, I just went for it. And it's, mu it's much more consciously gothic. And the one I'm working on now is like full gothic melodrama. So I, I think I realised that the influences that I'd had, my strange upbringing um, and um, being surrounded by conceptions of sin and guilt and eternity all my life have shaped my consciousness. And I see the world that way. It's not fake. I genuinely do constantly see strangeness. And so I just had to accept that that was the way I wrote. I'm interested in the idea of when you are writing in a tradition like the Gothic, which is has such a long tradition and such a rich tradition, how do you avoid pastiche? How did you think about that when you were constructing it? Um, I didn't, no, certainly not while I was doing this. And I think one of the things that has slightly been a saving grace is my desire to um, cling on to what I think of as the purest Gothic, which is quite tricky to do a pastiche of because it lies not in tropes and not in objects, but in feeling. Um, there's a great Gothic novel called Melmoth the Wanderer, which everyone must read immediately. And um, half it's a, it's a proper Gothic melodrama. It's the most frightening thing that's ever happened to me in my life was reading that book. Like, there were pages that I had to cover with my hand because I, I physically couldn't look at the paper. And halfway through the book, in italics, the author says, emotions are my events. And that really stuck with me. And so I think the avoidance of pastiche is to think not, oh, I will write a Gothic novel and it will have a maiden in distress and it will have a castle, but actually think a Gothic novel is about the reader feeling the emotions of the characters, feeling their terror, feeling their desire, feeling their seduction. And then if you cling on to that, then hopefully <laughs> you can avoid writing a kind of new Northanger Abbey, although that obviously is amazing. So. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and off the back of that, the thing that struck me the most about your style is it's so descriptive and um, you really do create a very intense atmosphere and it's incredibly visual. Um, and it actually, as I was reading, I was thinking, God, I haven't read anything like this for ages because it made me realise a lot of the contemporary fiction I read is engaging with um, a protagonist's inner world, but not really investing in this kind of tangible experience of the world around them. And those very subtle things, like you said, you know, the feeling, the, the character feeling how the atmosphere changes around him and physical sensation as well. Um, was, that was it a deliberate decision? Very much so, and um, there's two there's two responses wrapped up in that. I I um I'm very wary of people praising a non-existent prose style um, by saying your prose must be taut and spare and clean. I can absolutely understand that, but they think that that means don't describe anything. But actually what that means is describe it carefully and concisely and vividly and well and not for six paragraphs. Um, and so I think in the wake of creative writing being taught, of creative writing courses being available happily, um, to everybody, 
there's a danger that people are absorbing this thing and they're going through their writing and they go, I described something that must go. It's not spare and taut and clean. I used an adverb. This is terrible. <laughs> Where actually, if I mean, people very often cite Orwell. So he used this famous phrase, um, good prose should be a pane of glass through which you look, by which he meant you're not looking at the writing, you're merely seeing what the author wants you to see. And people have misunderstood that and they think that the writing shouldn't describe anything. But actually what he means is you should do it so lightly and so vividly that you're not thinking about the writing, you're only experiencing this physical sensation. And if you read Orwell, he uses plenty of descriptive language, but he does it well. And I remember when I did my MA, my writing was constantly called, so it's terribly old-fashioned, so it's a very old-fashioned writing style, and, um, you know, I'm sure some people will enjoy it. <laughs> and then, of course, I now realise, actually, this is, it's actually quite um, subversive to do this, um, which now, I, I only realise now because people have said it to me, I'm not claiming a subversion for myself, but, um, and to me... The physical world around us, I'm, uh, I'm almost an object fetishist and I'm certainly um, hyper attuned to what um, the surroundings can do to your emotions. And I think if you, if you encounter someone in a storm, in a muddy wood, just after you've fallen over, your reaction to them and your experience of them will be very different from if you met them in the cafe in Ikea over some Swedish meatballs. I mean, it just would be. And people are terrified of their prose using the pathetic fallacy, using all of the tools that are available to a novelist in case they get told it's old-fashioned, I suspect. Um, and actually, all of these things are available to us. So, yeah, it was a very deliberate choice. Um, and also just a function of the fact that that's how I see stuff a bit much, really. Uh, you, you mentioned Hardy, and I think I thought of Hardy a lot, not because the writing is that similar, but I think he is the master of pathetic fallacy, but in a, in, yeah. in a real way. Yeah. Um, and one of the other things that I think really creates atmosphere, if you can use that term, which is such a nebulous <laughs> term in the first place, um, is there's a, there's a real timelessness to the book. Um, it could be happening right now. It could be happening in some strange future. It could be happening in the past. And I sense that was deliberate on your part. It actually wasn't. <laughs> um, but um, I, this is one of the things that has really shocked me, um, but delighted me as well, because when you, you finish your book and it no longer belongs to you, it belongs to the people who read it and their opinions are entirely valid, including the people who have informed me that they wish I would never write another book. Um, <laughs> um, I, as far as I was concerned, had written a contemporary novel. To me, like I was like, well, it's called, it's clearly 2015 or 2013 as it was when I wrote it, and uh, the response to it was extraordinary. And twice now, in broadsheets, people have reviewed other books that are post-apocalyptic, and have said, and this calls to mind Sarah Perry's post-apocalyptic novel, After Me Comes a Flood. Okay, um, <laughs> and and one of the readers thinks that it's a fable, and that John Cole died in a car crash and has found himself in limbo. <laughs> and that this is otherworldly um it was submitted for a science fiction prize you know it's it's been appropriated by all different kinds of things now my um i think probably because of the way that i was brought up i often say to people i was brought up in 1895 that's the most accurate descriptor i can think of <clears throat> i'm very uneasy with the contemporary world in some ways um and Although I have a MacBook <laughs> and, you know, um, and can use my phone. Um, and so when I see the world, I think I'd react to it 
I react to the, the permanency and to the old and I'm slightly uneasy around the very new for, and I wish I weren't I really wish that I loved brutalist architecture you know but I just don't I like cathedrals and and so when I write occasionally I would try and put something in that was very definitely contemporary I think someone swore once I swear like a sailor and like nothing ever comes through in my books no no um sort of colloquial language because it immediately looks really strange um, so it's just, I, I don't know where it comes from. It's simply the way I see stuff and the way I experience the world. And and it's going to be a challenge for me in the future, I think, to try and actually grapple with um, a sort of realist fiction that talks about the way we live now. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't deliberate. And I'm not sure that people believe me when I say that, but it's true. There's a moment where one of the characters puts on a pair of denim shorts and it really stuck out because <laughs> I'd also experienced it as being in a kind of, not a post-apocalyptic, but like the, a literary hinterland, right? Yes, Where yeah. the rules are different anyway and you're expecting different things. And then there were these shorts and I, I was like, oh God, have I missed something? <laughs> but it was quite amazing. Um, I think one of the things that maybe uh, hints at it being in, an, in a different time or that takes it out of time is that your narrative is laced with a lot of lit literary references and John being a book dealer, um, which I find always quite a Dickensian yes. like point in a narrative, which is unfair, there are plenty of book dealers these days, but <laughs> it's just what springs to mind. Um, and I wondered why, why you made the novel so illusory, if that was deliberate or not. Um, so there's two parts to that. The, the elusiveness is... Um, not really deliberate. I I I grew up memorizing the King James Bible and um, reading great old literature, and it's kind of so, and so because I was taught to memorize scripture, I think my memory is really good for written stuff that's written down. Nothing else, but, <laughs> but if it's written down and preferably in meter of some kind, I will remember it. So I can recite quite a few poems and can still recite quite a lot of scripture. And so I'm saturated, and I'm very lucky. This isn't a talent; it's just happenstance. Um, and so when I write, things just come out, and I was aware of that. And so I made this is one of the few decisions that were absolutely conscious. I wanted to have this notebook form. I wanted to totally inhabit this other person's consciousness. And I thought it would be a little bit rich, <laughs> a little bit much to ask someone to believe that somebody who wasn't himself soaked in literature would be writing in this way where he would know the ancient lyric about the Western wind, where he would know about Wolf and Ed Wetcher. You know, it's, it's just pushing it too far. And I think you have to be really, really careful as a novelist not to assume that any character you pick is going to write in your Lexis so you make a decision you either say I'm going to write this way and I will therefore use a puppet who is a little bit like me or you have to choose not to do it so I made John obsessed with literature so that his notebooks could be as rich as I wanted them to be that's slightly lazy actually it would have been more of a challenge to have someone who was you know you know less interested in books and then I would have had to adopt a more ordinary Lexis for his book, but I couldn't be bothered. I like quotes. <laughs> it's also like little treats. There are different ways to read the novel, and the more you know about the history of literature, the more you see how things have been seated in. Yeah. So I quite enjoyed it. I'm sure, and I'm sure there are so many things I missed. I was interviewed um, at a festival a couple of, no, last year it would have been, and by someone who knows her script, and she kept picking out loads of allusions to the Bible that had completely passed me by, completely. And then um, I was on Twitter, 
and one of the ba- I love Twitter and I use it quite a lot. And um, and one of the bad things about it is that I forget that I write and I'm there as a reader. And so I talk about books and I engage with critics in in that kind of really excited way. And then have to stop myself and think, oh, but you're actually also on the other side of the coin. And there's got a quite well known critic was reading it and I follow him and he hadn't tagged me, but I just saw the picture, and he said. Sarah Perry says that she was brought up without any popular culture, but I've just seen a quote from Adam and the Ants. And I had to, and I had to tweet back and go, when I was 17, <laughs> my husband bought me my first ever pop music and it was a collection of 80 CDs. So yeah, there's an Adam and the Ants lyric in it, which, you know, if you notice that and you've been lulled into this kind of, um, you know, otherworldly thing, it's a little bit of a shock. <laughs> so you've been talking about John's notebooks um, and the way you, you constructed the novel was... Um, half in the first person with him writing down his experience and half in the uh, third person with a sort sort of omnipresent narrator. So why did you decide to do that? It's such an interesting uh, view upon the story. Um, I I just thought it would be fun. And also, well, I thought it would be um, an interesting formal exercise, right? So when you write it's really interesting to kind of see the range of tools that are available to you and I thought that that would be a really interesting thing to do I also wanted to unnerve the reader because if you're very embedded in one point of view and the point of view slips out and elsewhere you experience like a kind of shift and I really love the idea of affecting the reader in all kinds of ways and unsettling them was something that I gradually realised was a possibility. Um, and I also wanted to question the nature of truth. Like There isn't any truth, not really. You know, if you asked each of us about the experience of today, they could all be quite different and they would all be absolutely true. So it's setting up a counterpoint between the way John sees the world and actually how other people might have been experiencing him. Which ties into what I wanted to ask next, which is about madness, because madness is a very important part of the book. And like you said, that shift from, as the reader, first person to third person, I, I actually sort of suddenly was like, oh God, have I, have I been switching it in my own head? Which, you know, like you say, is, is kind of the idea. Um, and it's, you know, these other characters who are living at the edge of sanity in one way or another. Um, were you concerned about how to depict madness compassionately and... Uh, well, truthfully, obviously, as you just said, truth is totally subjective. But you know, with 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 the right intentions rather than the wrong intentions, is I, what I mean. Yeah. Um, that's a really good question, and I think it kind of touches on the extent to which novelists do or don't have ethical responsibilities while they're right. I think they do, and that's quite an unpopular <laughs> opinion. Um, I, like many people, have had um, suffered from depression, and I've uh, fortunately not suffered as much as Alex had. But I have been at the fringes of sanity more than once, and wanted to write about that and wanted to write about how that alters your perception of the world. And I also read this extraordinary book by Foucault, I think, called Madness and Civilization. That's Foucault, isn't it? And he talked a lot about the status of madness and how actually that disengagement from a kind of just reasoned engagement with the world used to be prized and celebrated. Um, people were seen to have access to some higher understanding, not degraded and sick, but actually different. And that's a very tricky subject to talk around because I think it's important that mental health is spoken of as being merely another kind of health and something that can be treated or perhaps can't be treated in that way. Um, and then second to that, I'm very interested in the difference between faith and madness. Is it insane 
to believe there is an interventionist God. What's the difference between that and delusion? Is the difference merely 2,000 years of tradition and some nice robes? You know, where do you draw the line? So I'm totally preoccupied in everything I write in my second book and in the one I'm working on now. Where does that line lie? Um, what's the difference between mystery and delusion? What's the difference between reason and madness? What's the difference between faith and being completely out of your trolley? You know, where, where is it? And is it necessary for us to be totally reasoned and totally sane? What do you, what do you lose by not seeing the strangeness of things? Um, so I, I really tried to write as ethically about it as I could and as compassionately. Um, I did encounter a blog post with someone who had diagnosed every character in the novel with a mental health problem and castigated me for my appalling misogynistic treatment of women with mental health problems which I was really appalled by because obviously I tried so hard to do the opposite but um that's what you get for googling your own novel <laughs> Alice's Alice Alex's madness especially um he seems to suffer from almost feeling too much of the world um it's very tied up with beauty and with truth um, and there's one beautiful passage where you sort of describe he stops taking his medication because he can't feel the air on his skin and feel the vibrations it made me think of that um, George Eliot quote from Middlemarch about being able to hear if we could hear everything in the world the growing grass and the squirrel's heartbeat we would die with the roar um, and that seemed to me a, a really interesting way to think about madness um, I think that Thank you. <laughs> um, and I think that that comes from um, the fact that there's kinds of madness. I'm doing inverted commas in the air, people. Um, and one of them is, so to be depressed <coughs> does not mean to be sad. It means to be depressed, lowered in all your sensations and in all your feelings. But then there's the other side of the coin where you're raised and everything seems more beautiful and more vivid and more rich and I I myself haven't suffered from manic periods but I know people who have and and members of my family have um sort of historically and um I know one of the problems of being medicated is that yes you are preserved from the danger of those manic flights but that extraordinary sensation of grandeur and possibility in the world is dulled and that's what I wanted to slightly get at, is that there are moments of um, unreason that are precious, and that's very hard to deal with. And that's why the treatment of mental health is so tricky, um, because there's aspects of madness, as we all know, we've all been mad sometimes, um, that are precious and prized and a huge creative drive. Um, and I know that, you know, I saw in Alex that feeling that actually his madness made him in some way special and made the world very special to him. And so to have to choose between being reasoned and ordinary and submitting to what the world expects you to do and choosing his way of experiencing the world is very hard. That's why The Ship of Fools is such an important poem, you know, this idea that madmen could be put out to sea on a boat and that they could there live as they needed to live, away from society in this kind of liminal space. Um, yeah. Um, water is obviously a very important part of this book, and as you were speaking, I was thinking that there is a, a nice um, link between this idea of water as being something that we can channel and control and direct, or the flood and the dams bursting, and you know that being this kind of epic, biblical, um, overwhelming, but maybe not negative 
by default. Um, and obviously Alex in the book is obsessed with the idea that they're going to drown in a terrible flood. Um, and it's something that, again, just listening to you now, I can see a link between, you know, um, society rejecting madness as an option, right? And like, and, and turning their back on it and plugging the holes, um, which is really nice. I just had that thought. <laughs> um, could you talk a bit about your next novel? I'm really excited about. Uh, there's a. I have a terrible tendency to immediately despise things that I'm done with. So I'm. Glad, I'm not over after me comes. I'm still very fond of it. But I. I had a really strange moment of feeling it depart from me. This is a, another terribly pretentious thing to say. I'm sorry. I'm hungover. I had too many cigarettes. It's all coming out. Um, <laughs> about a year ago, I think it was shortly after publication. I was walking home from shopping in Norwich and walked underneath an underpass. So it was in the least romantic and gothic place you've ever seen in your life and had two bags of shopping from the local supermarket. And genuinely, I felt John Cole depart. I've never, ever felt something quite like it. He just left. I felt a sensation deep behind my ribs of a leaving as if he'd just gone and I wept and I had to phone my husband. I put my bags down and phone him up and he said, are you okay? And I said, John Cole has gone. And he said, Some, I can't remember what he said, but he said, he's gone to other people now. I said, okay. <laughs> so he has now been replaced by the protagonist of the next book, which is called The Essex Serpent. And um, I will try and nutshell um, the plot, which is that um, at the end of the 17th century, a sea beast was seen in Essex. A great dragon with a beak like an owl and eyes like a sheep and leathery wings. And it crept up out of the Essex estuary and started sunning itself on the village greens. So they made these pamphlets called Strange News out of Essex, warning people about the Essex serpent. You can see it in the British Library. It's amazing woodcut with this like really cuddly looking beast and people poking it with lances. And I, so I was told about this and on a car journey and I thought, oh, if that came at the end of the 19th century, post-Darwin, at a time when people had a fad for natural history and going out fossil hunting, they would react very differently. They wouldn't think it was like a judgment from God. They would think possibly it's, it's some kind of living fossil. So the premise of the book is the Essex serpent has come back. But has it? So terror has descended on a remote village on the Blackwater estuary at the end of the 19th century. And an independent, wealthy, atheist Victorian widow leaves London to come down to the Essex countryside to find out what this thing is. And she meets an enlightened rector who is really annoyed that his villagers are getting really superstitious. And they, and they have this extraordinary platonic love affair um, and uh, it deals with intimacy and friendship and fear. What is the nature of fear? Why does everyone think there's something in the water? And so it's, it's gothic again. There's more water in it. So <laughs> there's some quite Perry-esque features. But it's <laughs> it's, I, I said to my, um, when my publisher saw it, I said, oh, it's completely different. And she went, mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, I, and I had a lot of fun writing it because it's a big, 19th century, huge cast of characters, omniscient narrator. It was really good fun. And it kind of, it's quite long. And it poured out of me in nine months. So you see before you a broken woman, <laughs> broken by nine months of sitting hunched over her computer. But um, yeah, so um, John has gone and William Ransom and Corey Seaborn are here. And then they'll go and then hopefully someone else will come. We'll see. Well, we've been laughing and <laughs> wrapped with attention. I mean, you, you sold that very well. I can't wait to read it. Thank you so much, Sarah, for being with us today. 
And uh, the book is called After Me Comes the Flood, and it is out in paperback. let's talk about literary imposters. Octavia, why do you think imposters are so intriguing as characters? I think it's because we are so fascinated by other people's lives and an identity. And two, in, it's kind of a two-pronged thing. Um, I think that most human beings, or certainly me, I can only speak for myself, I have a deep desire to get into the middle of other people's lives and find out how they're living because there's that you know, none of us know if we're doing it right or if we're doing it well. Um, and that's one of the things that literature is so beautiful for because it's stories and you get the chance to peek in on somebody else's story and narrative. Um, but at the same time, we are quite obsessed with identity and selfhood. And so it's a double-edged thing, I think, where, you know, to be an imposter is a, a space that maybe we would like to inhabit, but to have someone steal our identity or someone impose themselves into our lives is a horrifying thought for most people. Um, so it's kind of this double switch, I think. Um, also, I think the idea of an imposter just reflects what it is like to be a human. We all feel that we're play acting in some sense. Um, there's the imposter syndrome, which lots of young women I know love to talk about, where, where you feel you don't belong, even though you belong. And I think, in a sense, we are all imposters in our own lives. Um, we're constantly changing characters, depending upon the situations we're in. So in some way, literary imposters are, are just reflections of, of humanity at its, its base level. Yeah, <laughs> girl, you got it. Um, yes, I, I completely agree. I, I think also as a literary device, as a trope, having an imposter in your narrative, um, it kind of blows open a space for criticism because the, you, you can, your imposter is looking in from the outside. So it's a, ver it's a very neat device for a novelist. Um, to be able to describe a particular world from a sp specific point of view and then create a tension between those two things. Um, and also there's, there's a lot of potential for comedy as well. It's not all kind of heavy human psychosis, <laughs> philosophical points on a Tuesday morning. Um, you know, I was thinking of Shakespeare, obviously, is littered with characters who uh, adopt each other's personalities or name spaces. Um, and then also the space for morality, like Moliere, Tartuffe, um, you know, it's kind of a big moral tale in a lot of ways. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a literary trope with a lot of mileage, I think, you know? I think that's what, it, what I'm really trying to say. Yeah, and um, Sarah was saying it was, she almost, the imposter became a way to talk about um, what she wanted to 
wanted to talk about and wanted to depict. And I think that's probably right, that it, it's an excellent way. It's an excellent narrative way into a story, as you were saying. Um, so uh, to get even more meta about this, uh, <laughs> when we're reading a book, we we are imposters in a sense. Um, we're looking in on a world that we shouldn't necessarily have access to. Um, and so I, I think that is another way that reading itself is, is kind of like being an imposter and there's real pleasure in that actually. Yeah, absolutely. And it can be a positive or a negative thing. I mean, it can be a violence or it can be something of great joy. Um, I'm trying to think of examples. I mean, The Talented Mr. Ripley is such a, a brilliantly crafted book about um, stealing an identity. And, and it's, I found it unbelievably gripping because, because it's this horror, this horror that someone might step into your shoes, then live your life better than you, <laughs> as you. And then, you know, I'm gonna spoil the ending, so if you've not read it, close your ears. Um, and then, and get away with it. <laughs> you know, it's, I think Highsmith really taps into a very primal fear. Um, and, yeah, I, 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 I like what you're saying about the, the reader being like an imposter because I think whether or not you get sutured to a book is quite is an important thing, whether it draws you in. And I've had some experiences of reading where I've felt so much like an imposter that I've stopped reading the book because it hasn't, it, it felt too uncomfortable. Um, and then others where I don't feel so much an imposter as like a welcomed voyeur, you know, which is a very different feeling, but comes from the same sort of place. I love your intense emotional reactions to books. <laughs> it never ceases to amaze me. It's it's wonderful. Um, I think this question of the accidental versus the deliberate imposter is an interesting one as well, because um, how much do we identify with the imposter in the book? And, and does it change the way we feel? We talked a bit about the morality of the novel. Does it change the way we feel morally about um, this character and their situation? I think very much so, um, because, it, well, yeah, it's a difference between having a malicious intent, um, like in Mr. Tanzer, Mr. Ripley, or as in Sarah's book, you know, um, it's an accidental space that's created that the character just kind of slides into without really meaning to. And in After Me Comes the Flood, he's constantly saying, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell them that I'm lying in a minute, you know, in a minute, in a minute. And that's so human, because... I think you know we're all opportunists at one point or another, and um, that kind of feeling of I know I'm doing wrong, but I'm also really enjoying it, and it's fascinating me, and I'm not ready to give it up yet, but I'm going to go a bit further. You know, it's the difference between I think uh, if you want to connect with the the good part of the human or the bad part, the negative intention or the positive intention or the accidental, um, the, the the accidental. Full stop, actually, um, because, yeah, it does. It gives space for it not to be coming from a, a nasty place. But there is, there is a real delight and satisfaction in something like The Talented Mr. Ripley, where we love that he gets away with it. It's, it, we we take pleasure in that we take and I think actually on the other extreme um we're saying you know it, it's not necessarily bad to be an imposter Superman is is sort of the archetypal archetypal example um where he has to become human but actually he's a god um and he's disguising himself he becomes an imposter to save humanity um and in a tale of <laughs> uh good old Superman but <laughs> but you know he's not really human is he I think that that kind of selflessness, um, the, the, the totally good or the totally bad imposter, 
moves away from what we identify with in terms of the messy reality of, of living. Yes, you say so, but I actually identify wholeheartedly with Superman, so. <laughs> um, no, you're absolutely right. And another thing that, that the trope does is often it throws up, throws up tensions and problems in society, such as social class, and it can be, it, the, the imposter figure can create a space of criticism, critique. Um, so I was thinking of Eliza Doolittle in George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion, who, um, you know, Henry Higgins, kind of enables her to pass as something that she isn't. And this idea of passing, um, passing as a, a, a lady when she's actually a Cockney flower girl, um, and and in so doing, gaining access to a space that she's completely forbidden from before. Um, and then also, I love uh, Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest, which is all about m mixed identities, false identities, false identities that are allowed to get away with things that you would rather not be so base as to do. Like um, he creates this false friend Bunbury, Bunbury who never has his wallet, so everyone else has to pay for dinner. You know, it's like farming off certain parts of the personality so that you don't have to deal with them. Um, and in The Importance of Being Earnest, actually, there's this brilliant quotation. It is a terrible thing for a man to find out suddenly that all his life he has been speaking nothing but the truth, <laughs> which really makes me laugh. Brilliant. Um, and you, we talk a lot about the, the British novel on this show, if there is such a thing, but I think uh, class, as you say, creates these spaces um, where people can switch and experience different things. And it's a question of whether it just reinforces it or breaks it open. Um, I felt similarly about uh, Garfield's A Tale of Two Kitties, um, <laughs> which a masterpiece of cinema also explored the idea of the imposter. Right, the classic prince switch with pauper yeah and and to, to also that i mean that's a classic fairy tale isn't it the prince dresses up as a pauper and in order to find true love not dominated by the fact that he has money wealth and status um and I, it's interesting thinking about that story actually i wonder how relevant it is today where we like to think contemporary society is much more mixed and accessible and actually in this country it just isn't you know and you still are kept behind boundaries and you still don't have access to all of the spaces. So yeah, I think often you, you know, one does feel like an imposter. I also, I just have to get in a tiny little intersexual feminism thought, which is, um, you know, I wonder if women feel like they're imposters more often than men, because still so many spaces are, are very new to us and still so many are not uh, allowed. And then obviously within that, within the intersectionality of feminism, race, ableism, all of the other things that come to play, you know, sexual orientation, gender identity, um, the more of those things that intersect, the more isolated I think somebody can feel and therefore the more like an imposter whenever they're stepping into territory that is not by default open to them. Yeah, it's the tension between uh, an individual and the labels that society puts upon them. And I think gender is, is a great way to talk about imposters, actually. Um, and, and there's been a lot more discussion about what it means to be um, transsexual, bisexual. What, what, how does that, how do you grapple with the terms that are available and, and the things that you may feel that have nothing to do with um, what you feel inside? Yeah, and actually talking of trans identity, the feeling that you are an, Im an imposter inside your own body, the wrong body, if you're not cisgendered, so your insides don't match your outsides, essentially. 
Um, a friend of mine's just been reading Jeffrey Agenedy's Middlesex, which kind of touches on that kind of uh, stuff. But actually it was written probably, did it come out in the 90s? I mean, it's it's not early 2000s, so it, it has some quite old-fashioned um, ways of engaging with transgender identity. But um, this disparity between the internal and the external state of the characters, yeah, it's a, it's ri it's a rich territory. But it's also a very real reality for a lot of people. And I think, you know, for authors to approach that subject, they have to tread incredibly carefully because you don't want to be assuming the position of spokesperson for a community that is not your own or an experience that is not your own, that is so um, polemic, I, I guess, as well. At the same time, and this is getting really far away from the theme now, but I just have to end with this thought, is that um, it, this gets into the question whether authors should only write what they know and therefore be truest to the experience, or actually fiction is a way of experiencing other worlds that are not our own, and therefore authors should have the ability to explore things just as the reader can explore a different world. I think the key word in all of that is respect. If you approach a different lived experience from your own with the right kind of uh, of respect for for the for the all the ways in which you are not that person then i think it's okay but i think that there is a lot of, there's a huge risk of exploitation and you know essentially what rebecca sonnet talks about so brilliantly in her essay about mansplaining you know mansplaining can be done by all of us for any other group that is more marginalized than us um and so you've, you've just i think you have to approach with caution but i also i you know i don't believe in um locking any doors to anybody in literature because it is a space where you can explore anything and, and that has to be allowed to happen yeah let's all be imposters <laughs> just step into new worlds and disguise ourselves okay great thank you Okay, so let's talk about our favorite literary imposters. I wanted to talk about The Wizard of Oz, which I think uh, is such an interesting idea, not just because we find out at the end, um, I hope this isn't a spoiler, I assume it's not, um, that the wizard doesn't have any powers at all, and actually he's just a guy from Nebraska who got blown off course in his balloon. So it becomes a story, of course, about not trusting authority and believing in yourself and all those rah-rah American concepts. But, um, but... You know, he doesn't even really want to be the wizard. He just wants to go home and join the circus. And I think that that makes him so human and so identifiable. And that's what I love about that is that nobody's really done bad. Everyone's just muddling along. Yeah, and also, you know, obviously the way that we need to create false gods in order to give ourselves faith and hope in order to keep living, right? Like he doesn't assume the power. The power is bestowed upon him by the belief of everybody around him. Um, good choice, very good choice. Mine is uh, Coleman Silk from Philip Roth's The Human Stain, um, which I found so gripping when I read it a few years ago. It's the first and actually only Roth I've ever finished, um, but I really enjoyed it. And I'm not gonna give too much away because if you haven't read it, I don't wanna spoil it for you. Um, but basically the plot centers around this character, Coleman Silk, who's a retired classics professor at a college in New England, which was actually modeled, Carrie informed me earlier, on Williams College where she was educated. Um, so in New England, we're in the States. He gets accused of racism by two African-American students and then his wife dies from a stroke and then his life just completely falls apart. Um, and as the narrative unfolds, we realize that he's really not all he seems at all. Um, it's classic Roth. 
it's full of all those particularly masculine neuroses um, and fear, the terror of becoming irrelevant with the passing of time, becoming anachronistic. But I think it's one of his best books. And like I said, it's the only one I finished, but I, I really enjoyed it. So, yeah. A ringing endorsement from <laughs> Octavia Bright. Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, let's just get straight into our book recommendations. Um, we have Sarah Perry back with us to give her recommendation, which is very exciting. Octavia, do you want to start? Yes, and this one I really am endorsing enthusiastically. <laughs> um, mine is Under Milkwood by Dylan Thomas. Um, and it's always been a favorite of mine, but this month I found it on an LP um, and it urged me to get my hands on a paper copy again. Um, and I realized I'd only ever listened to it. I'd never actually read it properly all the way through. And it's bringing me so much joy. Um, it's a radio play, if you haven't heard of it, uh, completed by Thomas in 1953. And he'd been working on it for eight years. Um, ended up being the last thing that he really put out. And he actually was writing, um, he was finishing the script as the actors were putting on their makeup before to perform it in New York for the first time. So yeah, he was a last minute Larry, just like me. <laughs> um, God, I can't believe I just compared myself to Dylan Thomas. The arrogance, <laughs> <laughs> the arrogance of that. Anyway, um, it's really beautiful to listen to, uh, especially if you can find the recording of Richard Burton reading it in his amazing treacle voice. Um, but it's so funny and so clever that reading it is, I'm finding completely worth it too, because you can take your time over the text and you can be a bit slower with it and really enjoy all of his uh, um, syntax and everything. Um, and it's set in a fictional Welsh village, fishing village, called Laragub, which is bugger all backwards. Um, and the narrative voice weaves its way in and out of the dreams and innermost thoughts of the inhabitants of this little village, um, including nostalgic old seafarer Captain Cat and Organ Morgan, who's obsessed with music, um, and the formidable Mrs. Ogmore Pritchard, who is the relentless nagger of not one, but two dead husbands. Um, and I picked up a copy, which is printed by Phoenix Press when I was at Port Elliot Festival a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it's a fantastic edition. It's got a wonderful introduction by Wolford Davies, who's professor of literature at the University of Wales, um, which is really illuminating and, and interesting. Um, yeah, and I just think it's a really funny, true, and really deeply human piece of writing. And he, is su he was such a master of language, Thomas. Um, so I would, I would say read it. But yeah, the, the edition, um, the Phoenix edition, it calls itself the definitive Thomas, I think. And I would really recommend it. Great. I've, n I've never read any Dylan Thomas. I know. I, I, I had to read Do Not Go Gently Into That Good Night. And that's in school. And that's basically it. No. <laughs> <laughs> if you could see the expression on both Sarah and Octavia's faces. Jeez. You're going to still be my friend. Maybe not. No, I'm just going to buy you some Thomas for your birthday. Um, Sarah, do you want to give your recommendation next? Um, my recommendation um, is by uh, a book by Maggie Nelson. She's um, getting a lot of uh, publicity at the moment because her latest book, Argonauts, has done very well. Um, but I'm recommending Bluets, which is a book that came out a few years ago. I read it last year and I've returned to it repeatedly. 
um, and it influenced aspects of the Essex Serpent and it's become very precious, like a, a kind of book of hours. And it's a fragmentary book. She writes in these brief paragraphs, sometimes just a line, sometimes sort of half a page. And it's a memoir of her being utterly besotted with the colour blue. It's a love affair to the colour blue, completely obsessed. She catalogues the objects that she collects that are different kinds of blue. She lists them like listing a liturgy. And through it, she explores desire and suffering. And it's absolutely extraordinary. Nothing really, no non-fiction work has ever affected me quite so much. It's blisteringly personal, very frank, quite explicit in places, desperately sad. Um, it really gets at how desperately painful and frightening it is to love and to desire. Even if it's requited, it's still frightening. And all filtered through a blue lens. And so you learn a great deal about the colour blue and the history of the colour blue. And it's about pain and suffering too. One of her very good friends was paralysed in an accident and she cares for her. And she tries to deal with these experiences with her total fixation on this colour sensation. And I've, the lines of it, I've memorised that she, having catalogued her desire for the colour blue and the way it has illuminated her life and completely obsessed her, there's one line and she says, I want you to know there was a time I would rather have had you by my side than all the blue in the world. And that I keep, I, sometimes I'm on the bus and I'm thinking about it. It's the way she says, I want you to know. And so the book is also addressed to the person that she loved and possibly lost, I'm not sure. I can't recommend it enough, really. And it's quite hard to get hold of. You might have to order it online. But you will thank me, I think. <laughs> sounds wonderful. Um, I'm going to recommend All the Birds Singing by Evie Wilde, um, which was published in 2013, so quite recently. Um, I, I actually interviewed Evie Wilde at a festival, and, and so I read this book, and I, I knew that she was named one of Granta's best young British novelists, and I also knew that a couple of friends whose judgment I trust had raved about this book. Um, but, God, I think this might be one of the best books I've read this year. It's just... God, it is so brutal and so beautiful and so affecting. I read it in, in one sitting, just about, which hardly ever happens with me. Um, and it, it actually begins, so our um, protagonist, Jake, is standing over a sheep that is bloody and its intestines are hanging out. Um, and we find out that she's living alone on this remote British island and um, somebody is killing her sheep. Uh, and she, she sort of sets out to find out who it is. But it also, um, the, the story has two narrative strands. So we're both going forwards in time in sort of modern day Britain, but also backwards in time as we find out what happened to Jake. And it turns out she, she'd been living in Australia and she has these mysterious scars on her back. And I, I, I mean, it, we were talking about strip back prose being trendy. Um, and I see that, but this is top quality strip back prose. It is really, really good. Um, and really compelling because you, essentially it's a mystery of, of what made this woman the way she is. And also Octavia, I, I think you would especially like it because <laughs> it, it, it asks some very, very interesting questions about gender. So everyone should read this book. Um, and I, I think that's about all the time we have for today. Thank you so much to Sarah Perry, whose novel After Me Comes the Flood is now available in paperback. We'll be back next month talking to Max Porter about his debut Grief is the Thing with Feathers. 
I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.